This is an ABC podcast. High up in the Adelaide Hills is the very pretty historic town of Handorf. Handorf was largely built by German migrants who came there in the early 19th century. Hannah Kent's new novel is a story of secret love between two women within that colony of migrants who are hoping to find freedom and prosperity in South Australia. And when Hannah was researching this story, she came across the journal of the sea captain of the ship that brought these migrants from Germany, a man named Dirk Hahn, who gave his name to Handorf. Hannah went through that captain's log and she read entry after entry, describing the weather conditions, malfunctioning equipment, latitude, longitude, etc., etc., etc. But then she saw an entry that suggested something sinister was at work on that voyage. What Hannah found in Hahn's journals helped inspire her new novel, Devotion, which charts the story of two women from Prussia making a new start in an old land. Welcome back, Hannah. Thank you so much for having me. This is a novel that's in part about the Adelaide Hills, where you live now. Is that where you grew up? It is, yeah. I, uh, I spent some time living in Upper Sturt when I was very little, but most of my memories from childhood are growing up around Allgate and Heathfield, where I also went to school. It's a really p- pretty part of the world. I can remember it as a kid myself. Uh, being an Adelaide girl, does that mean you were given like Fritz sandwiches? And by Fritz, I mean that's the <laughs> same kind of semi-inedible luncheon meat that <laughs> is called Devon, I think, in Melbourne, and uh, I think it's called uh, Luncheon in, in Brisbane and Polonia in Perth. Did you have that, smothered in tomato sauce? I wouldn't know about Devon or luncheon meat. Both of those things sound quite gross, but I loved Fritz. <laughs> Fritz was fantastic. What are you saying? Really? Fritz and sauce. It wasn't just Fritz and sauce sandwiches. Uh. We used to cut off slices of Fritz and fry it sort of in lieu of bacon <laughs> on the weekend. I adored it. I've tried it again as an adult, probably just out of nostalgia, and it's hideous, of course. (laughs) Um, I'm not sure. In my mind, you know, my child's mind is telling me that they've changed the recipe. Something's gone awry over the years. But, yeah, I I really I love the stuff. It it raised me, to be honest. I don't don't know. I'm traumatised by it. I can remember, like, hot Adelaide summers at school and opening the lunchbox that's been sitting there all day. (laughs) And Fritz baking in the heat. It's not so great. I think the secret, like a lot of things, is a lot of butter in that sandwich as well. Yeah, a lot of butter and tomato sauce to completely conceal the flavour of it, I think. That's all part of it. But nostalgia, nostalgia. Your character, your young character, your Hannah, or Hannah for short, is enchanted by the natural world where she grows up. Was that you too as a kid? Oh, absolutely. I think that was one of the reasons why I enjoyed writing this character so much was because I was able to sort of indulge my own memories of just being completely enchanted by the natural world that I that I lived and was educated in. Uh, I was very fortunate to spend most of my childhood on about eight acres, uh, my parents' place in Allgate, along near the Allgate Valley. It was essentially a cow paddock or two and then they built a house there. But I have so many memories of reading beneath this huge oak tree which we had and I used to, it was my dreaming place. It was incredibly special. We also had a dam, so I'd spend lots of times just sitting by the dam watching the the black ducks come in and land and uh, we had sheep. I just, I spent a lot of time outside, me and my sister, and uh, I think I think reading alongside, alongside spending so much time outside really sort of cemented the two, you know. My imagination was so closely linked to the landscape growing up. It became very, very special indeed. Some years ago I, spoke, I was speaking to a psychologist who was saying, that solitude in nature for children gives you such stability in life. That was his theory anyway. It gives you a kind of inner core. It helps build that, gives you a sense of responsibility, inquisitiveness, inquiry, peacefulness. I would agree, but that's, you know, that's based on personal experience alone. But I have so many memories. I mean, I I have a terrible memory, actually. I forget a lot in life. But my memories of being outside as a child are so so keen. I I remember, for instance, I remember winter mornings can get quite cold in the Adelaide Hills and we used to get wake up and I would see the sun just coming over the horizon, cutting through this very misty air, hovering over the dam and the entire paddock just being absolutely white with frost. And the rest of the family would be asleep, but I'd, I'd, you know, put on my gumboots and crunch, you know, the sound of walking on crunchy frost down to the dam, just to, just to be in it and picking up, you know, pieces of grass and looking at the ice crystals on it and playing games with gum nuts. I just, it's such a fulsome memory as well. I remember the sounds, I remember the smells. And when I remember 
these memories, I do have that sense of peace. And I do think it, it did give me a certain sense of, um, I don't know, a sense of companionship and, uh, yeah, I just it, I, feel, I feel like I was quite a calm child and maybe that came from having so many opportunities to be outside. Companionship's an interesting word and it strikes me as a very true one as well. What do you think's there alongside you? I'm, life. <laughs> I think uh, I think it's just about being aware of yourself as belonging to the natural world, but that sense comes from acknowledging everything else that belongs to it too, perhaps. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a way of perhaps zooming out of your own mind and recognising that you are a very tiny piece of a very intricate and complicated and beautiful puzzle. And rather than making you feel insignificant, rather it, it's a reassurance. Well, that's certainly how I found it, I think. Probably lack the language to articulate it in such a way, but that's certainly how I find it now and I don't think that would have necessarily changed. I don't think I realised how much I loved Australia until I lived away from it and I found myself missing those kind of cold mornings where the air smells of eucalyptus. You can hear a currawong or a kookaburra or all kinds of Australian birdsong. Have you had that when you lived overseas? I do. I remember actually coming back from spending a year overseas and just being struck by the quality of light mm. that we had here and how big the sky. I have a very strong memory of coming back from the airport, just looking up outside the car window and just being astonished by the intensity of the blue and the, and the golden light of those changing hours as well is, is something I think which is quite unique. Uh, at least has been in my experience. Yes, you yeah. realise the whole time you've been in Europe, you've sort of been squinting at the world and now yeah. your eyes are open at last, being back in Australia. That's how it seems anyway. Yeah, just this sense of abundance, mm. yeah. It's almost, you know, you've got to put sunglasses on. It's almost overwhelming. Hannah, does your line of ancestry go back to those German migrants to the Adelaide Hills I was talking about? It does, yeah. I, I'm related to, I believe, as far as I sort of pursued it, which is half-heartedly, I'm related to Prussian emigrants who came out a little bit later than the ones that I focused on in writing this book. There were a bunch of uh, Prussians who I think came out as a consequence of receiving letters from relations and friends who had already emigrated and were saying just how free they felt and how they were making a really good go of things and the temptation was there. But there were also revolutions and other diseases and all sorts of problems afflicting that area of Europe throughout the 19th century, which I think was also a motivating factor. So I'm related to, I think, a butcher who came out, um, I think, in the, in the 1840s and then went on to live in the Barossa. So I have a strong sort of lineage on, on the sort of the Barossa side, on, on Paramount country, um, and also, you know, English as well. Uh, some of, I think, the first non-convict ship to come out bearing the English. I think I'm related on that side. I sort of, I, I don't necessarily have a great passion for, for sort of finding out all the absolute details of my own, uh, you know, those that I'm descended from, mainly because I think I still hold quite an ambiguous uh, opinions regarding the colonisation. Not ambiguous, I think colonisation of South Australia and the rest of Australia is absolutely appalling and it's hard not to see and study these people without keeping that in mind. Uh, but, yeah, I certainly am related to them. I was astonished to discover from this that those German migrants were Lutheran Prussians. I imagine the Germans who settled the Barossa and Handorf were sort of gregarious, wine-drinking, Bavarian Catholics for some reason. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> were they teetotalers, these people, or did they like their little beer and a bit of wine and beer occasionally? Well, this is what fascinated me so much, is that they were an incredibly pious people. In fact, many, many of them, initially, especially those congregations who first came out uh, on those sort of initial four, four ships, really, who came out sort of in the late 1830s, um, they they refused to dance. Dancing was regarded as a sin. <laughs> and yet they did enjoy drinking. And uh, there's lots of stories of people getting particularly drunk on, on moonlit nights in Handorf because they were able to see their way home. Um, but also many stories of people finding, you know, these very pious parishioners sort of lying in the, the side of the road <laughs> come morning time. So it's one of those weird sort of anomalies, I guess, when you regard, you know, what a pious life might look like. Certainly wine was not was not exempt. There was an old joke that used to go around about Adelaide before Don Dunstan came along and liberalised the drinking laws that, that South Australians feared drinking 
that it might lead to dancing. That was that was the the, yeah. the, the fear of the time. <laughs> I think that was the main worry because people, if there's actually a very there's a very funny story of a Lutheran congregation. This is a little bit later than my novel is set, but that a congregation in Lobethal was celebrating a wedding, which were usually quite a sombre affair. You know, the bride would wear black and so on, and wow. then but there was a little bit too much wine going right. around, and you know the music started to get a bit too jolly, and some people started to dance, and of course this scandalised other members of the congregation who were also present. And the pastor had already left. He'd, he'd attended the ceremony to conduct it but had left on horseback and he was summoned. People chased after him so that he could come back and reprimand everyone for dancing. And then they had to uh, be essentially publicly shamed before the congregation in the following service and had to make a pardon on threat of excommunication. So, yeah, it's a, it's a, weird, <laughs> it's a weird sort of combination whereby please have, have much to drink but don't you dare dance or do anything jolly with it. You sit at the table. <laughs> and that's it. That's yeah. it. That's the end of it. Yeah. I, I, this is a weird thing to admit to being interested, but I've actually always been fascinated by the Prussian Lutherans and the lives they led and the kind of worldview they had. These were people for whom the written word of God was such a big deal. And for that, because they, they were so immersed with the Psalms and the Old Testament uh, and with the natural world, the natural world around them to their mind was very much like a gift of God for their personal use. So do you, do you wonder what they made of coming out to Australia and being in such a radically different natural world? I wonder what they thought about that. It was something that I was trying to find out in various historical resources when I was researching this book because, I, you know, you want to know what those first impressions were. I always remember taking a Year 12 art class and being shown some of the early paintings that were painted by the English colonists uh, and they just looked like the English landscapes because they had their brains essentially. They had no way of seeing the Australian landscape. They didn't know how to paint trees where the light came through the branches. And then you see over the over the course of the years, eventually these landscape paintings take on more and more of the qualities of Australia as we would recognise it. But yeah, I was trying to find out whether that, that was shared by these Prussian emigrants. I wanted to know whether they were uh, grateful for the for the landscape that they were seeing because they were hopeful of freedom amongst it or whether they were concerned that they would be able to continue what was essentially an agrarian existence in this new place. What I actually ended up finding was that many people found it incredibly beautiful, I think because mm. they were regarding it solely through the prism of it being a great blessing from God. What I seem to have found in the various letters and diary entries that, that remain from that time is that people regarded themselves as being caretakers of the land in a, in a different sense than we would perhaps, uh, you know, think of today. I, certainly they regarded land as being something that needed to be tamed and needed to be worked um, and probably changed and disfigured in some ways, but nonetheless that it was theirs to to use and then to pass on to further generations. Let's go back to what brought them to Australia in the first place, Hannah, going back to way back to the beginning of the 19th century. These were people who were called old Lutherans. What does it mean to be an old Lutheran as opposed to a Lutheran, Hannah? So old Lutherans was the name given to people who essentially began to dissent against the Union Church. So the King Frederick Wilhelm to anglicise it, Frederick William III, decided that he wanted to unify all the Protestant churches in Prussia at the time. So just, I believe it was in sort of the, the very late 18th century, he initiated a commission which would look at ways to provide a single service book for all these Protestant churches to use. This took around 20 years to sort of bring about. And eventually when this service book was presented to a lot of the congregations, some congregations took issue with the particular services, in in particular the Eucharist, so, you know, the, the giving out of, of bread and, and blood. And they believed that the text and the words that would needed to be spoken as directed in this new service book did not acknowledge the real presence of Christ. So these are sort of, in some ways it's semantics, in other ways it's this very sort of specific but highly important detail to them. And so they refused to accept the service book. And for some time there was a little back and forth where people, the king was trying to reconcile those who were dissenting and refusing to use the service book and Initially, it was uh, offered as an optional service book that could that could be used, but eventually uh, he sort of put his foot down and said, no, 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 you, we are a union church of Prussia. You must use this, this particular service book. And 
many congregations, those who still absolutely refused to that were known as old Lutherans. And they were the people whose pastors, if they were caught in a pastoral, acting in a pastoral role, uh, would be imprisoned. So many of them fled um, and the congregations essentially had to take a lot of their services underground and conduct them in private, either in, privacy, in the privacy of homes mm. or out in the open, in forests at night and so on. What about their lives, the lives of these villagers that, that were old Lutherans in Prussia at the time? Were they prosperous peasants or were they artisans? What's your sense of that? There would have been landowners amongst them, but there also probably would have absolutely been those who lived uh, what we would probably call, and I'm borrowing the term from those times, a more peasant sort of peasant existence, uh, very much an agrarian existence. And these were certainly the people that I ended up concentrating on because I was interested in examining the lives of women particularly whose whose sort of day-to-day was extraordinarily domestic. So we can probably imagine that many of them, and, and this is partly gathered from the ways in which they lived their lives once they reached Australia, were hugely self-sufficient, but of course that meant labouring from very early in the morning to quite late at night. The church bell, the church in their lives was more than also a religious presence. It wasn't sort of just, you know, occupied sort of the belief compartment. The church was omnipresent and in many ways it guided their day-to-day existence. For instance, absolutely no labour or work on Sundays. And the bell, the church bell would be rung morning to bring them all to work and rung again at the evening to stop them from working. And I think this is still to this day kind of memorialised, for want of a better word, in some of these townships and the people who remember this kind of past in Australia, that these were incredibly hardworking people and people who, for whom the church was absolutely central. It, it, even the architecture of these particular villages that they, that they formed, sort of the Hufendorf, this sort of horseshoe shape of houses, they all pointed towards the church in the middle. So an incredibly important part of their day and days were long and filled with hard, with hard work, I imagine. There's a lovely moment early on in your novel when Hannah is sent to fetch her mother and she's sitting in a circle of women in a house and they're plucking goose feathers to make an eider down and the, the women are sort of laughing uproariously. As a, you know, as a, as a boy and as a man, you don't you don't get a glimpse into that world very often of where, where women are sitting around doing work with their hands and making each other laugh by being really profane and telling funny stories like that. It happened to me once. I remember walking into a room, a room full of aunties on a hot Adelaide summer's day, sitting around the kitchen table, and when we I walked in with my dad, <laughs> auntie said, "Oh no, the men of quarters drinking beer." <laughs> It was a good idea for us to clear out because we got a sense we were ruining their good odds. Is that what you were thinking, that kind of a moment when what women do when they sit in a circle, work with their hands and start telling stories? I think so. I think, you know, it takes a little bit of extra digging, I think, to find these kinds of moments because because they're a little, you know, it's essentially in the province of women's work, so it wasn't always necessarily considered important enough to document. But they, they do, of course, exist in a lot of personal anecdotes and memoirs and, and more sort of local histories. And I was really, I, I think growing up, I was being a girl, I was party to being uh, these sorts of gatherings. I have a lot of aunties. I have a lot of very strong women in my own family. But I was also probably thinking of my grandmother who had a lot of German heritage and spent a lot of time growing up in the Barossa. And she, I think in my mind, typified a lot of the qualities that these women were said to have. They were very obedient. They would never take a compliment. They could <laughs> never accept that what they were doing was was good enough. So there was a lot of self-deprecation. But when they were sort of alone or, or when they felt comfortable, when they felt they weren't necessarily being observed, you know, my grandmother was the the sweetest, most diligent woman I have probably ever known in my entire life. But occasionally just with the, she had these sort of hidden seams of rebellion and sometimes in a certain moment, uh, often a celebratory or a sort of sense or in a community sense with other women in the family, she could be hysterically funny and sometimes very cutting, which was all the more hilarious because it was so surprising. And I loved this idea that my grandmother, who you wouldn't necessarily think if you met her for the first time, would say boo to a goose, actually had this such a rich inner life. As of course, I mean, we all do. But I'd, I was so interested in writing about that because I, I love I love those moments where women, particularly, I believe, as would have been the case in, in historical times, had the freedom to sort of shed the proprietary that their social roles expected of them and could be funny and make each other laugh and, yeah, and just be, you know, a little bit naughty sometimes. So this brings us to the 1830s and the old Lutherans in Prussia have decided they're just going to have to get out. Tell me about the pastor who decided he was going to lead them out 
of this place. So as so around the same time that a lot of these services were going underground, there were becoming increasingly uh, increasing sort of pervasive punishments for those who were known to be dissenters. Um, people were being fined and were growing quite poor as, as a result. They had obviously been stripped of their spiritual leaders who had either gone into hiding or had fled. Many uh, members of the congregation were also being imprisoned and so they were being they were quite miserable. Um, the, the pastor who I ended up spending a lot of time researching was a man called Pastor Cavell and he initially had joined the Union Church and then had sort of had a night of the soul and said, no, 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 I'm, I can't do that. I can't subscribe to this new service book. I'm going to continue to lead my congregation. And many people followed him as well. He had enormous power in his communities. He thought it might be a good idea to see if he could find another country for his congregations to emigrate to. Initially that was Russia, then he was looking for America. But what eventually happened was that he met a man who was the chairman of the South Australia Company, which had formed shortly after the South Australian Act in 1834. This chairman he was called George Fife Angus. As in Angus Street in Adelaide? As in Angus Street in Adelaide, as in Anguston in the Barossa. Oh. He was very sympathetic uh, to the cause of the old Lutherans and it looks like he and Pastor Cavell established quite a friendship and initially he promised to lend the money to support their immigration. And, I mean, this is not just a charitable act, of course. He was going to receive interest on that money. He was also actively looking for ways in which he could find labourers to work all the land that had been stolen uh, from the Indigenous peoples but all the land that, had been, that was being bought up at the time. And so he thought, well, here I have a bunch of hardworking, you know, Prussian peasants. I can send them over. I'll get interest on my returns on their ship journeys, the cost of their ship journeys. And there will also be suddenly workers who will be able to fence the land that I've bought from afar and work on stations and so forth. So, Hannah, how did they feel, these poor, pious Prussians, when Pastor Cavell came back and said, good news, folk, we're all going to Adelaide on the, on the far side of the world? I wonder <laughs> how they felt about that. Do you know? Well, this is why I was so interested in finding out because we do have some letters and things from people who were part of these congregations. They are all men and many of them see it as God, again, a blessing from God, a means for them to escape their persecution and practice their true faith in, in the way that they wish to. And so the, the accounts that I read, the letters, are, are full of joy and relief but at the same time, I've also read a lot of sources which come from those early years, you know, the 1830s and 1840s. There was a German traveller called, uh, I think his name was Friedrich Gerstacker, and he comments that he met many German wives in these German villages that he was just completely, you know, bamboozled by. He couldn't understand that he was in Australia and yet basically walking through his home country once more. They so resembled the villages he had left behind. But he, he comments on speaking to some of the women and being struck how the men are so enthusiastic about their new life here and yet the women, so many, he says, are absolutely stricken with homesickness and really feeling the isolation. And when I encountered that, I was like, oh, this it's you cannot trust every single source you read. I'm sure there would have been the entire range of reaction and emotion to, you know, leaving loved ones behind. Not everyone was able to leave. To leaving a place that was familiar to you and suddenly coming somewhere where many families were... Perhaps in places like Handoff, they were a little bit closer. They were very, you know, tightly knit. But in others, such as what would eventually happen in the Barossa, many homesteads and things were very far apart and many of the women who were bound to those homes and not necessarily with the same freedoms as their husbands who could go to towns and who could socialise as other means, um, through other means, you know, became very lonely. But I think it also is important to remember that if someone did... Uh, was upset at the prospect of leaving or, or found it particularly hard, it wouldn't necessarily have been easy for them to express that in a public sense or certainly in any sense that would have been documented or recorded because it would have been looking like you were ungrateful for this great blessing from God, from this freedom, from this religious freedom offered to you. So I think these feelings would have been felt, but I think they would have also been very, very private. So 1838, they all get on board a ship called the Zebra, which sails out of Hamburg, uh, goes through the Baltic Sea and out to Australia. Tell me about the captain, Dirk Hahn, what you know about him. So Dirk Hahn, by all accounts, seems to have been a man of great principle. He was a young captain. He'd sort of accelerated quite quickly in his career. Uh, he was a Danish man. 
and uh, the fact that the congregations named Handorf after him as a gesture of gratitude goes a long way, I think, to illustrate the sort of person he was. He wrote these uh, fantastic journals, which I came across in the State Library of South Australia quite early on in my research, which really determined the sort of story I felt that I was going to tell. And the reason is that he, uh, these journals are actually quite funny to read because initially he talks about his his just great sense of horror when he realises he's going to have to take about 200 emigrants to Adelaide, where mm. he's never been before. He's never sailed there before. And then the journals become... The, the, the emigrants he mentions from time to time, he comments on the fact that when they're still in harbour and upon the, up the ship, they sing all the time. They're very, they hold services morning and evening. There's, there's frequently addresses and they sing. And they're... And does he like this or does it get on his nerves? He likes it. He actually says, or you assume he likes it because he's including it and he only really includes positive aspects in regards to the emigrants initially. Uh, But he comments that many people request to sort of row out to the ship so that they can listen to this singing and he does say that it's very beautiful. Then the rest of the journals, occasionally you get a little comment on the emigrants and initially I was reading this resource thinking, oh, look, I have no idea what it would have been like to sail a fully rigged three-masted ship, you know, for six months, maybe I'll continue to read these journals just to get a sense of weather or things that happened. But a lot of it was incredibly dull. And so I'm sort of sifting through all this material thinking, oh, you know, I just, I want something about the immigrants. I want to know what it's like between decks. And then once they've sort of arrived in Adelaide, he says exactly this. He says, I have deliberately omitted from my journals many unpleasant incidents. And I'm like, oh, here we are. What's happened? By the time he reaches Adelaide, some of the conflicts and the problems on the ship have become so big he fears that they're going to people are going to lay charges and they're going to go to trial and he will have to testify in Adelaide. So he thinks it's a good idea that he documents all these conflicts. But also individuals start to creep up. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Hannah, before you were saying how you were reading, you were reading the, the journal of the ship's captain, Dirk Hahn, who brought these people out from Germany. And it was all sort of pretty banal stuff up until he reaches Adelaide itself. And he says, I have not been entirely straightforward with my accounts. And that's when he begins to say, what's been going wrong amongst these pilgrims? What kind of things does he start to write about? This is what I just found so interesting, is that the first thing that really comes into these new entries that he's making is the presence of the ship surgeon, who is a man that the captain acknowledges that when he first met, did not think a great deal of. He describes in a very sort of, um, in a negative way, he describes his physical appearance and he sort of alludes to it without being, you know, he's never, he never goes all out and says that someone's absolutely rubbish, but he sort of alludes to the fact that he doesn't think much of a person. And he suggests that the doctor wasn't actually able to be employed in Prussia, that he had never really succeeded in his medical career there. And that's why he had taken this position as ship surgeon. And then he goes on to say that there was just so many arguments between this doctor and the and the passengers there were about 200 uh, immigrants on board and initially they were you know understandably afflicted with all sorts of things that he describes like seasickness there was a case where a few days just only a few days after they'd set out into open sea the birds that had been assigned to them which were sort of bottom birds and top birds uh, very close quarters two confined to one bed you can imagine just how close and oppressive it would have been the top birds collapsed onto the bottom <laughs> and so they're sleeping the room available to them for sleeping even though they tried to prepare them the captain acknowledges that they were that they would 
so badly built in the first place. There was really nothing that they could do to fix it. And so many people had to go up on up onto the deck to sleep, where, of course, because the hold was filled so quickly, there are strapped all these barrels and boxes and shipping casks and all sorts of things. And, uh, and people have to climb over all these hogsheads and whatnot just to find some place to sleep. So, I mean, it's incredibly uncomfortable from the start. And then things are hampered even further by the presence of this doctor, which really, as you go on to read the numerous amounts of conflicts that arose, seems to be quite a malevolent doctor. In what way? Well, he's very incompetent at healing the sick. He tends to argue with them rather than give them medicine. And many of the immigrants <laughs> object and say, why aren't we receiving medicine? You know, my husband is ill. They were, many of them were afflicted with seasickness and then often scurvy. The diet of the ship was something that was very unfamiliar to them. These were people who ate a lot of potatoes and, you know, pickled vegetables at home. And here they were eating a lot of salt meat and many of them felt that they were becoming ill because of the food. Oh, a bit um, of sauerkraut would have sorted them out with scurvy too. I mean, that's a shame. No. It was recommended. I think they did end up eating a bit of sauerkraut. But the captain, um, the, the ship surgeon was the person responsible for distributing rations. And so people were oh. complaining that he was mixing it up. There were in, initially people were saying that he was giving more to some families and not enough to others. Then they start sailing through the tropics and he, he encourages some of them to eat salted herring and they say why would we have salted food when we're going through such hot weather it's making us thirsty they end up opening some water barrels only to find that the water barrels the water has been put in old barrels not new barrels so these were barrels that previously held whiskey and other liquids so it's taken on the taste of that and it's become completely adulterated and barely potable and so people start to blame the doctor more and more for these small discomforts and then some people don't recover and seasickness goes into scurvy and then goes into more serious uh, illnesses, such as something that he describes as nerve disease or nervous fever, which might have been typhoid or typhus. People start to come directly to the captain to complain about the doctor's treatment. He, at one stage, a wife of a very ill man, asks the doctor where the medicine is and the doctor says he's already given some and she says no I've been here all the time you haven't given my husband anything and then the doctor seems to snap and turns around you can imagine there wasn't a sick bay it was just the very confined quarters turns around and calls them all peasants he complains that they're living in filth and not looking after themselves and yet doesn't help them by fumigating with smoke and juniper doesn't help them bring up to air their mattresses and they sort of say look you're responsible for trying to keep us in a state of good health and here you are blaming us for our own sickness and then things get a little bit more sinister when some children, about 90 children, you know, that's nearly half of the passengers on this boat are children and many of them become unwell and unfortunately some of them die. And a father of one of this, this, his daughter has passed away, comes to the captain and shows him the medicine that the doctor has finally given him and says, look, there is glass in this medicine. Oh, my God. And the captain calls the doctor and the doctor sort of makes this fumbling excuse about the fact that, you know, he had some vials which smashed and he tried to clear it up. But, you know, that's enough to seal the passenger's He's opinion of the doctor. He's giving broken glass to children as medicine? Yes, and some of them wonder whether he did it on purpose, that he had ground up glass. And there are a few other things which happen. The doctor basically washes his hands of them. He says, fine, if you all hate me, I won't have anything to do with you. He stays in his cabin and the elders sort of take charge and try to lead the people and take over the rations and so forth, which the captain isn't happy about because these are not the rules, right? But then he, the captain mentions other things that the doctor does, which is when he's still not servicing and looking after these emigrants, he comes to the captain and he says that he has this, this box of sort of smallpox vaccines and he would like to try them out on the children. And the, doc, and the captain says, absolutely not. These are live vaccines. He says, why on earth would you do something that could risk bringing smallpox amongst the passengers. And so you start to wonder about the motivations of this ship surgeon and whether, you know, he was this absolutely malevolent character because at the very least he was hugely incompetent. So these are documented because I think primarily the captain was concerned about some of the passengers taking the doctor to court. He tries to reconcile. He's very much the diplomat between the emigrants and the doctor, but to no avail. They, they all seem to hate each other by the end of it. I can't imagine anything more terrifying than being stuck on a wooden boat going from the Baltic Sea to South Australia with your kids living at the mercy of a psychopathic doctor. Mm -hmm. That seems really frightening to me. 
And I think the fear that is described by the captain would have been absolutely real. You know, the the, the confines of a place. I was I was struggling actually when I was researching to picture what it would have been like. And I ended up going to the Maritime Museum in South Australia and there they have actually constructed some berths as would have been found in these emigrant ships. So you can lie in them and you can see how close the upper berths are to your forehead and you can feel just how thin the mattress is. But what also struck me was just how loud it would have been and how the air would have just been so close that you would have really struggled to get anything resembling fresh air, that you would have just kind of been felt on the brink of suffocation. And then I remembered that when I was reading the captain's journals, that had happened. There was a very bad squall and the hatches had been battened down and the elders started to protest because people thought that they were actually suffocating. There was just no air. There were too many people. There was no air. And they were beating on sort of on the hatchway saying, you need to open this up better that we risk being drowned by all the water pouring between decks than we just all suffocate here with no air to breathe. It's almost too much to imagine. This would have been a, quite a horrific journey for many, many people that certainly wasn't necessarily easier when they, when they arrived either. Yeah, and so what happened when they did arrive at Port Adelaide? So the Zebra, the the ship that this uh, captain was sailing, was sort of the the third to arrive of, of four ships that really started bringing out these these dissenters, these old Lutherans, and uh, the Port Adelaide at the time was known as Port Misery. So you can <laughs> you can see it wasn't necessarily you know a great harbour. It was very tide dependent. I think um, I might have seen Port Adelaide described that in one of the SAL competition years. I think. Look, to be honest, I'm not going to say anything. It's not my place, but, you know, people are entitled to their opinions. But, uh, but, they, uh, but they arrived, they had to wait for several days on still on board the ship. They couldn't even disembark because of the nature of the tides and the mudflats there. And then there was no sort of, you know, proper harbour that had been built, so they were wading through, you know, a lot of this water to get to the sand dunes. There was no fresh water at Port Adelaide at that time, so and the, the tents that they started occupying were the ones left by the ship actually that Pastor Cavell came out. He wasn't on their ship. He was on one that had arrived, you know, a couple of months earlier. And uh, these these tents are described in first-hand accounts as being absolutely alive with vermin, you know, filthy, 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 filthy. And they started living there. And initially it was Pastor Cavell's hope that they would all be able to occupy this land which had been allocated them by George uh, Angus. But the captain actually took it upon himself to go to this this village that they had formed on Ghana land, a place they called New Clemsic, today known as Clemsic. And he was sort of horrified at the quality of the soil and he didn't think that the community would be able to, to be self-sufficient there. They, he didn't think it would sustain them. And so he urged them to find somewhere else to go. And that was when he really came into probably the the service of the community, which led to them naming their, their settlement after him called so, Handorf. So how did they get to Handorf? How did they go from there up to the Adelaide Hills to this new settlement of Handorf? Well, Dirk Hahn managed to speak to some of the people who had acquired land around the Mount Lofty Ranges on Paramount Country. And he managed to arrange a contract whereby they were loaned, I think, about 100 acres and so he came back to the port where these people had been working. The children had been, you know, occupied in, in walking to Adelaide, to the township, to the River Torrens and, on, and putting water in barrels and then bringing it back on, you know, she-oak sleds for the use of the community there and to sell. And then the women were laundering there at the, at the port and they were all sort of taking on what work they could to alleviate the ship's debt, which many of them would have been absolutely preoccupied by. It was an enormous sum of money. And then Han returns and he says, there is land for you that I have found where you can work. I've said, There'll be resources for you to put in, you know, wheat, uh, to have gardens. You'll be able to eventually build a school and absolutely a church. And they were all hugely grateful to them. And from that point, they started the journey across the Adelaide Plains on Ghana country up into Paramount country. What was that ranges. journey like uh, to go from, because that's no, no small distance if, if you're not in a car, <laughs> to go from the Adelaide Plains up into the Mount Lofty Ranges? It took a long time. The first, some of the better off families, there's, I've I'm actually, I found it difficult to establish whether they were able to hire bullock drivers to, um, to carry some of their stuff. I think some did, but even the, the path up once you sort of hit where Glen Osmond is, and in fact, they, many of them stayed on at Glen Osmond for some time to sort of rest and recuperate. Um, you know, it would have been very hard for bullocks to even go up there. And so most of the journey was done on foot because these people were poor and 
they didn't really have, you know, any other means to do so. So some people were able to fashion sort of handheld barrows to put some of their belongings in, but most of them had to carry it on their backs. And of course, they weren't able to carry everything on their backs. And this is one of the reasons why the journey was so slow, is that they would have to walk one day carrying some of their belongings, drop them there, sleep overnight, return the following day and the next day bring more stuff and leave it there and sometimes do, do this repetitive sort of back and forth over oh. a section of the journey several wow. times. Wow, God, can you imagine? And they had scurvy too, didn't they, these people? Some of them were so afflicted by scurvy they could hardly walk themselves So because they had swollen limbs, lots of people's teeth had fallen out. A lot of them were in quite a bad way after six months at sea with all these illnesses around. And, of course, they were carrying food. They had leftover ship's rations that they were bringing up with them. So it wasn't just their own belongings. It was food that they would need to, to live off once they arrived. So an incredibly long journey. I believe a lot of them left sort of end of January it took about a month for them to find somewhere that they would go. Uh, the faster of the families arrived there in March, but the last of the families didn't arrive until May. Well, when well, the weather hang on, Hannah, had... this is 40-degree heat around about this time of year in, in, in Adelaide. So they're yes. doing this through the, the blistering desert heat of Adelaide and Adelaide summer. Yes, they are, yeah. Uh, and, and so what happened once they arrived in the beautiful, cool, lush green valley up there? <laughs> Well, they, the first of the families, it's, it's been documented in many different accounts that the first thing they did was just fall to their knees and thank God. Uh, the land which they had been sort of, had been set aside for them was Paramount country that was known to the Paramount as Bocatilla. There was a deep watering hole there and that's what Bocatilla alludes to. And the Paramount had spent, obviously centuries uh, developing this country, but predominantly for kangaroo hunting. So but to the Prussians, it looked like a park. It was studded with these giant river red gums, but the rest of it was largely cleared and filled with kangaroo grass. So it wasn't this sort of scrubby, dense landscape at all. It was this very luxuriant sort of valley. Um, so and the they... Paramang people set it up like one of those kangaroo runs where kangaroos come down a cleared valley down to a waterhole while they can hide in the trees that are adjacent to it and then, and, and then come out with spears. That's what I gathered from what I've read. Of course, but the Prussians don't see it that way at all. They see it as God's gift, that God has found them this park. They keep oh. on alluding to it as a park for their use. And the first thing they do is sort of work out where the church will go and there's a surveyor amongst them and he starts to set out these sort of little long, very narrow rectangles of land that will abut each other and sort of curve up around in a, in a horseshoe and they they place where they think the school will eventually go, where their church will go. And, and, and what did the Paramang people make of these strange people showing up and building a church and a school on their, on their kangaroo run, their hunting run? Well, this is what was so hard for me to find out because I really was interested in the kind of those initial sort of interactions between the Prussians and the Paramank. I have found several sources in historical uh, records, in the archives, in books, in letters, but these are all from the perspective of white people. These are all from the perspectives of the invaders, essentially. So I've, I've, I've struggled to find... I, I struggle to trust everything that I read in regards to this, but... By many, many accounts, it seems that the earliest interactions were very friendly. The Paramank were not always situated in Handorf. Um, they often were up higher in the ranges as well. Some sources say during bad weather, they had they had houses made out of stone there that they used to live in, and then they would come out seasonally and, and often also go to the place where the, the river ran through Bocatilla uh, and set fish traps, and they would use it for those purposes as well. But there were, of course, many interactions, and in fact, many sources, especially those that were written by uh, women, um, allude to the fact that the Paramanks saved them from starvation in that first winter. By the last, by that time the last families arrived in May, the weather was already turning. April always brings tends to bring rain in the Adelaide Hills. The end of April. And this particular winter was very hard. They had been so eager to put in a crop, uh, a cash crop, largely wheat, that they hadn't really spent any time building sufficient shelter for them. Some of them were living in these hollowed out red, red gums that had been fired for that purpose as shelter by the Paramang. Um, and they, the ship's rations that they had brought with them were dwindling. They had no wheat left for themselves. They were making bread out of rice flat rice that they would grind and use as flour. They uh, the scurvy was heightened, of course, by the lack of fresh fresh stuff that they were able to eat, and the paramount 
we're able to then show them how to source as the seasons progress. We're able to show them how to source uh, yam daisies. They showed them how to catch possums and birds, uh, berries, other roots and vegetables, um, insects that they were able to eat. And many, many sources credit them for the survival of the Prussian community that first winter. They also provided other resources. Um, there's a very famous hiking trail, as it now is, called the Pioneer Women's Memorial Trail, which I think is a problematic title considering that it was an initially a paramount trail. Um, and this enabled once they were the, the women of this Prussian community were able to plant gardens and harvest fresh vegetables, they were then able to go down to Adelaide. They would sit out at midnight, walk throughout the night barefoot, sometimes with up to 30 kilograms on their backs, and then sell the fresh produce to, to the English down in Adelaide and receive an income that way, which then enabled them to buy animals and to better the farms and things that they were they had there. But it's I was always reluctant when reading about these encounters and these interactions and these relationships between the Prussians and Paramount because you know that what is happening is still theft. You know that despite the absence of hostilities that I guess uh, we would expect or perhaps might imagine from that time, it was nonetheless a hostile act. It was an absolute deprivation um, of land and resources and it had, was catastrophic for the Paramount in so many ways. I think also when you write historical fiction, there can be a tendency for to celebrate the historic past. And that was something I absolutely did not want to do in regards to colonial South Australia. There's so much which was absolutely deplorable about it. How could I honour what happened but still make it accurate when so much of the story is dominated by the white oppressors? So that was a big challenge in writing this book. And it's something that I, I you know, I'm very happy to stand corrected on. Of course, I was able to also speak with uh, a wonderful woman, uh, Elder Mandy Brown, who was able to offer me so much fantastic perspective and to sort of reconsider some of the ways that I had written particular scenes. And I, I'm endlessly grateful to her. But it's it's such a tricky thing, you know, when you write about the past. It's, someone's perspective always dominates and there are always prejudices and ideologies that I think you have to work really hard to interrogate. Yeah, well, you're writing... A novel, you're not writing history, though. I mean, that's the thing. It's going to be necessarily subjective when you do this. But looking back at these people, it seems to me they were more like American pilgrims than the soldiers and prisoners who came to New South Wales and, and Tasmania. How do you think that this has made South Australia different, distinctly different to the rest of Australia, Hannah? I'm not sure. I think, you know, I think you're right in saying that these communities were, you know, much more like those we might expect in the sort of puritanical communities that settled in, in North America. They were very unto themselves. They were very closed. Um, they didn't really marry outside of their community. They didn't tend to go out labouring for long periods of time outside of their community. They're there to build a new Jerusalem rather than a prison as well. That's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, you know, the pastor was encouraging them not to interact with the English. However, of course, that was inevitable. There were, you know, I think lots of South Australians, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek like to point out that there were never any convicts in South Australia. And that, of course, is, is a lie. There were many people who had these pasts um, who had been brought out on convict ships who either escaped or resettled over in South Australia. And many of them actually worked in a place known as the Tears in the Ranges, cutting wattle. And they lived within this sort of stringy bark forest and uh, and some of them, you know, became bushrangers and did things. Some of people in South Australia will be familiar with the Crafus Hotel. Uh, there was a very interesting sort of hold-up that happened when some of these tearsmen who might have had a convict past um, rode down and held up the Tears Hotel, uh, which the Crafus Hotel used to be known as, and then proceeded to shout themselves and other tearsmen all their alcohol and then got riotously drunk and then passed out and then were arrested and hanged later. So, you know, there were certainly this presence there, but the, the Prussians were very eager to to stay away from all of that. I couldn't really comment on how it might affect sort of a, a modern South Australian identity if such a thing exists, but I do think that I, I tend to see their legacy as being a little bit more cultural in terms of the wine and the food cultures that they brought over and perhaps in a religious sense as well. But, uh, yeah, certainly it wasn't this, you know, this state where you only had these sort of very proper English English settlers and these very pious, you know, isolated Prussian communities. It was a little bit more tangled than that. Your first two novels are historical novels set in Iceland and then in Ireland. And this is your first novel that's set close to home. Was that a bit daunting, Hannah? 
Yeah, it was. It was for a whole bunch of reasons, actually. One is that I I think with my previous two novels, I always felt that it was my position as an outsider, as someone who didn't belong to these histories or cultures that enabled me to sort of have fresh eyes and to be able to ask questions of narratives that perhaps people who were raised in these places didn't ever really question because they're, because of familiarity. And so when it came to writing about South Australia, I was a little bit worried that my own familiarity with this place would, would prevent me from asking the questions I needed to ask because so much of my writing is based on asking questions of the past. It's not about what's already known. It's about, you know, the silences and the gaps and the absences and things that exist in there. That's what interests me. But I actually found that the opposite was the case. I, rather than sort of leaning into uh, wonder at a, at a new culture, at a new history, I was able to sort of lean back into my love of of the Australian landscape particularly. I think that was what I ended up enjoying, trying to distill everything that I loved uh, about this the natural world that we are so lucky to live in here and try to put it into prose. And uh, yeah, in the end, it, was, it wasn't anywhere near as scary as I thought it might be. You got married when same-sex marriage was legalised in Australia. Did that have a bearing on your decision to tell this story of your characters Hannah and Thea? It had a huge bearing, actually, because initially I wanted to write about friendship. You know, we were talking earlier about the fetish licence, this gathering between women where you would prepare the marriage quilt, and I was so interested in the relationships that these women might have had with one another that my early drafts were about those friendships. I was I wanted to explore how the friendship might have sustained them on this incredible life's journey where, you're, you know, you're fleeing persecution in Prussia and coming to a new country. How, how might these relationships that these women had, these friendships, have... have have been so significant in their lives. And then 2017 happened with the plebiscite on same-sex marriage and my girlfriend proposed to me and I said yes. And that made me, again, go back to, I guess, my motivations for writing this particular kind of novel. And I thought, well, I, I'm interested in writing friendship, but, I, you know, there's, there's been lots of books written about that before. What sort of book do I want to read? Where are the silences and absences and gaps in this story? And I thought to myself initially that I might romanticise this friendship between these two characters that I was envisaging, that they might essentially be in love with each other but because of the times and their religious background never be aware of the true nature of their feelings, just rather have a very intense, meaningful friendship. And then as a queer person I thought, no, I want to read a queer story. I I want them to be absolutely aware of their feelings for it. I don't want them to sort of have all this but never, you know, be able to speak about it directly. I want a direct, very open love story. And so that really is when I found the heartbeat of the novel. That's when everything took off and that's when I knew that I was I was writing the right thing. So in some ways it was a, a means for me to write about a relationship which was like those that I had experienced in my own life. And on the other hand it was about, I guess, you know, writing a book that my younger closeted self might really have needed. Hannah, it's been so lovely speaking with you again. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Hannah Kent's new novel is called Devotion. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. last time you bought something to wear? This week? Yesterday? The average Australian buys 56 items of clothing and chucks out 15 kilos of clothes a year. So how did we get here? I'm Veronica Milsom, host of the ABC podcast Threads, where I undress the fast fashion industry and how it's designed to make us buy until we die. Threads. It's everything fast fashion doesn't want you to know. Hear it in the ABC Listen app.